And we've been asking foundational questions about what we believe as Christians. And remember, we're going to have a little interactive time Q&A and discussion afterwards. So jot down some notes on that sermon half sheet. You'll see some additional resources and application questions. It'd be an opportunity for you to share what's God teaching you through the message today, through his word. Well, let me ask you to get started. Question. How can we know God? How can we know his attributes, his character, his glory? How do we know specifically what he desires of us and what is true? How do we know how to be saved? And how do we know how to walk in faithfulness and the challenges that we face in this world? Well, people have been asking these questions for millennia, okay? We're not the only ones. We're not the first ones. One example from church history that I want to share came 89 years ago this month when leaders from the evangelical churches from around Germany gathered for what they called the Pastors Emergency League. And it was uh, a gathering in the city of Barmen in Germany, and the year was 1934. And uh, at this moment, Hitler was chancellor of Germany, and the German state church had begun colluding with him and following some of their ideology and such. And so this emergency gathering of these church leaders drafted what became known as the Barman Declaration. And it asserted their biblical convictions, and it called out the German state church for following the Nazi party's ideology. And I want to read to you the introduction of what this document says, because it is so illuminating how these believers stuck to their biblical convictions in the midst of incredible turmoil. Listen to what they they wrote. The Confessional Synod of the German Evangelical Church met in Barmen, May 29th to 31st, 1934, 89 years ago tomorrow. Here, representatives from all the German confessional churches met with one accord in a confession of the one Lord, of the one holy and apostolic church. The Confessional Synod insists that the unity of the evangelical churches in Germany can only come from the word of God in faith through the Holy Spirit. Thus alone is the church renewed. And if you find that we are speaking contrary to scripture, then do not listen to us. But if you find that we're taking our stand upon scripture, then let no fear or temptation keep you from treading with us the path of faith and obedience to the word of God in order that God's people may be of one mind upon the earth and that we, in faith, experience what Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ, as attested in Holy Scripture, is the one word from God whom we must hear, trust, and obey in life and in death. Friends, just three months after they drafted this, It was published in the London Times. I mean, it's a public statement drawing a line in the sand. Who really is Lord and King? Three months later, German President Hindenburg died, and Hitler would proclaim himself the supreme ruler of Germany, plunging Europe into another world war and resulting in the deaths of over 50 million people. And the confessing church, as it became known, okay, this document launched a new movement within Germany, what they called the Confessing Church, 
They would continue to struggle against the German state throughout the war, and they were led by pastors such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom many of you have heard of, and they insisted on sticking to the truth of God's word no matter what. See, Bonhoeffer realized, along with a host of other underground church leaders, that they have to remain faithful to Christ, come what may. See, the 28-year-old Bonhoeffer at this time, knowing that his fidelity to Jesus might cost him his life, this, he wrote a letter to a friend four days after Hitler took power. And this is what he wrote about what he faced. My calling is quite clear to me. What God will make of it, I do not know. I must follow the path. Perhaps it will not be such a long one, for I desire to depart and to be with Christ. Friends, he knew what could happen by saying yes to Jesus in the midst of this particular moment. And on April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer would be executed just one month before Germany surrendered. And he held fast to his biblical convictions in the face of terrible persecutions and in the midst of the horrors of war. And friends, just like Bonhoeffer, stood his ground and gave his life to defend the truth. This morning, we are going to read what the Apostle Paul wrote to a young protege of his named Timothy on the eve of Paul's own execution. You see, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy this morning. And the second letter to Timothy is probably Paul's last written work. It's at the end of his life. Here he is, uh, 25, 30 years of ministry under his belt. And and he's writing mere weeks, perhaps days, before he was beheaded for his faith. And, and he knows, as he looks across the world that he's living in in the first century, he's reflecting on the moment that he finds himself in. And this is how he put it. This is just a few verses before the text we're going to focus on today. He says to Timothy, but mark this. This is the beginning of chapter 3. There will be terrible times in these last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Whoa. This description, I, this, sound, this hits a little close to home. Because if you think about the things that we struggle with today, or if you reflect on what you're bombarded with when you walk out the door every morning, this could be a description of our day. Paul encountered the same thing. Friends, how in the midst of times like this, or in, in the struggles that we have, how are we to know God? To know what he desires, to know how we can be saved from our sin. Okay, when Timothy found himself in this environment, these difficult and tumultuous times, his mentor Paul, at the end of his life, he sets out this simple truth that is the same simple truth that the German Confessing Church was declaring in the Barman Declaration, and it is this. Trust in God's word because these words, through these words, you can know the living word himself, Jesus Christ. Be strong, Paul says to Timothy. Stand firm in the face of false teachings or persecutions. Proclaim the scriptures. These are the very words of God. No matter what, hold fast to them. This is what we're going to see in our text so powerfully this morning is this reality that through the God-breathed scriptures, we can encounter God himself as he speaks to us, as he reveals who he is in his word. 
Okay, let's uh, open to our text here this morning. Grab your Bible and open to 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. And we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 5, and, and, and see this critical question. What is the Bible? And, and we're going to look at Paul's encouragement to Timothy to stand firm in the midst of challenges. And as we read this, I want you to listen to these words as though they're an encouragement to you today, like in our, in our day. So follow along as I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and following. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, Faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away their ears, they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, friends, um, before we dive into the text here, because we're doing our foundation series, I want to make sure we define some key terms. As we approach the doctrine of Scripture, there's some key language that we need to make sure we're, we, we understand and have a foundation on. Okay, so the first one I want to share is the term verbal plenary inspiration. We talked about verbal inspiration in our statement of faith. What does this term, this is a technical term, what does it mean? Okay, it means that the Bible is inspired in its words and its meaning. Okay, this means that not only the very words that are put down on the page, which is every dotted I, every cross T, is exactly the way that God wanted it, inspired by him. But it also means that the meaning behind them, the truth that they communicate, is inspired by God. And so this explains that the scriptures are God-breathed, that the meaning is from God, it's communicated by God's spirit through these human authors. Now, let me clarify one thing. This does not mean that the human authors are passive agents, as though they're sort of in a trance and dictating the words of God and writing it down. They are fully engaged in their humanity in the writing of the texts. As though God, it, it, it's, their humanity is not canceled out in the writing of Scripture. 
It's why we can study and appreciate the unique vocabulary and grammar and historical situation of each author. And yet they were writing God's very words, inspired by the Spirit, every detail in its words and its meaning, inspired by God. Okay, that's what that term means if you encounter that. All right, second term I want to share is the term inerrancy. It means without error. It's a simple word, inerrant, no errors. Now, this means that in the original writings, the scriptures are without error. It means that, as we see very clearly here, the Bible always tells the truth. And this is so important because it's rooted in God's nature. We got to understand the scriptures are his revelation to us. And so in God's nature, in who he is, he has no mistakes. And so his word is an inerrant word. Okay, related term is the term infallibility, which means that the the scriptures cannot err. Now they're related, which means that In the infallibility of God's word, it's that the Bible cannot tell a lie, and it's rooted in God's nature. God does not lie. And so we can trust that his word is infallible. Okay, the fourth term is the term canon. A canon is a simple term. It means a collection of writings. It's a term that's used in other instances as well. But when we talk about the Bible and the canon of Scripture, we talk about the 66 books of the Old and New Testament as recognized by the church. Now, let me ask you a question when we think about canon. Who determined the canon? It's not a trick question. God did. Okay, sometimes we get a little wrapped around the axle with this and wondering, okay, well, how come this church council said this and this person was saying this at the time when we get into church history? And and yes, of course, God is working by the Spirit through his people to, to understand which scriptures he has inspired. But when we talk about who determined the books of the canon, God did. We recognized what God has given us. That key word, recognized. Okay? So those four terms sort of set us on a good trajectory here on some terms you may encounter when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture. Now, let's dive in our text. All right? So we're going to look at our text now and see that Paul answers two questions. What is Scripture? Verses 10 to 17 to chapter 3. And then what are we supposed to do with it? In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So let's look at what is scripture. We're going to go into the first one here. All right, go to verse 10. And I want you to see the the focus here is on the special revelation of God through the scriptures. There's a flow to this paragraph that helps us to see how Paul is drilling down in three different layers to help us to see where the bedrock foundation is of what we know is true. Now, in verses 10 to 13, he starts by saying describing how he models a life where the truth is lived out in all the various circumstances that Paul encountered. So verses 10 to 13, he's describing how he models the truth in his own life. Then the next one, you can go to that slide. The next one is that verses verses 14 and 15 explain how Timothy's own mother and grandmother taught him the truth from infancy. Then in verses 16 and 17, we see him get to the heart of the matter, that the scriptures are the very words of God. So we're going to look at this flow, all right? It's very critical to see this. Now, think about Timothy as he's been watching his mentor Paul for many years. He's presently seen the fruit of Paul's faithfulness to God's word. Paul is certainly worthy to emulate. Now, why is that? It's not because Paul's so clever 
or that he says, I've got the answers or I know exactly what we should be doing here. It's because he's constantly pulling himself back to be reformed and, and to understand God's word and to walk in faithfulness in that. Now, he's showing that his life is built on this foundation of the special revelation of the scriptures that testify to Jesus, even if it means he's persecuted. Now, the opposite of this is what Paul describes as a contrast to the evildoers and imposters. I love the word imposter here, okay? Because in the original language, the word imposter, it literally means to howl, like howl like a dog. And the word is describing what would actually happen when these uh, false teachers would, 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 would do these enchantments, uttering incantations in a kind of howl. They would wave their arms in the air and make loud sounds and try and make a show out of mesmerizing you that there was something supernatural or spooky or, or, or beyond this life happening when they spoke. It was all about a gimmick. They were the swindlers, the charlatans. Okay, friends, the same happens today. There are so many gimmicks and tricks and deceiving words today, even in the church, people making a show out of having something clever to say. And, and friends, the environment of the internet has only made this more accessible and more rampant. But what does Paul say to Timothy? He says, don't be taken in. Dig deeper, Timothy. There's a foundation on which all right teaching stands. God's very words in Scripture. It's a light to illuminate the darkness. Now, a complementary text that we need to grapple when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So if you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 1, 19 to 21. Here's what 19, verse 19 says. We have this prophetic message as something completely reliable, Peter says. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in the dark places. Friends, Martin Luther, the great reformer, as he's encountering opposition in the Catholic Church and he's sticking to scripture as he talks about God's grace, salvation, Christ alone. He knew this well and this is what he said when he encountered that reality in his day. He said the word of God is a light is a light in a dark and gloomy place. Therefore, look not on how gifted they are who teach any other doctrine, however grandly they set it forth. He says, if you cannot trace God's word in it, then doubt not that it is mere darkness. Since they have not the light, neither wish to receive it, they must remain in darkness and blindness. For the light of God's word teaches us everything we ought to know and all that is necessary for salvation, a thing which by the world and its wisdom and reason knows not. That's what Luther said. In other words, friends, don't listen to the imposters. Watch those. This is what Paul's describing about his mentorship. He's saying, Timothy, keep an eye on those people whose lives are full of the light of Scripture, who have modeled the faith, patience, love, and endurance no matter what the cost. Because when you watch that life, you're going to see that underneath all of what you see there is going to be the light of God's revelation them following Jesus as we see him in scripture.
Okay, so he says, look at uh, how I'm modeling this. The second thing is he encourages Timothy to look at the past. See, when he was younger, and we know this from chapter one of the same letter, Timothy was trained in the faith by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And from infancy, they taught him the Bible. How critical, friends, that we are saturated with God's word, even in our earliest years, because it reveals the way to be saved. Paul says it'll make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Then he drills down to the last layer, and we're going to spend a little time on this, this bedrock of where we know the truth, that the scriptures are God's very words. Let me read again verses 16 and 17, because I want you to just immerse yourself in these words. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word, good work. Now, as we read those two verses, there's three claims that are made there, and I'm going to walk you through them, okay? What Paul does is he describes the origin, the purpose, and the result of Scripture. Like, what, do we, what Scripture, what does it mean? And so, the origin first is he says that the Scriptures are God-breathed. Where do they come from? This is the classic question of inspiration. Whose words are these? They are God-breathed. And what's interesting here is that this word God-breathed, this is the only time this word's ever used in the Bible. Paul, many scholars say that Paul coined a new term. He made up a word because he said, there's nothing like the scriptures, and so what word will I use to describe it? I'll make up a new one. And he says, he puts two common words together, the word for God and the word for exhaling. And he says, these words are though as though God is breathing out uh, earlier in first service, we were talking about this in the Q&A time. And there's like a, a theme across scripture of God speaking. He spoke creation into existence out of nothing. He breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve and into humanity. And over the course of, of, of the history of Israel, he speaks his words to them in the law. And then now with Jesus, he is the word made flesh. The living word. And when Jesus departs, he breathes on his disciples and gives them his spirit. The word spirit in Greek is literally the word to breathe. It's the breath, the presence. It's, it's the Holy Spirit is not actually wind. The Holy Spirit is, he is a part of the Trinity. Okay? But the word is describing like as though God is speaking his words. And what we see across the whole scriptures is in the garden, we had the breath of life, God's very presence and word with us and we became spiritually and physically dead and in Jesus Christ the living word he breathes new life in us by speaking the very words of God and by making us come alive to be a in our resurrection life Whew. inspired word of God God breathed to know him in his ways we see him through the scriptures Okay, so how do we understand this idea of inspiration in a, in, a, in a deeper way here? Let me point you back to that second Peter passage, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 21. Peter says that the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means that they were directed and sustained by the Spirit in every word 
so that God would bring the very words he wants to his people. Now, they still wrote in their own hand, so we can understand their grammar and vocabulary, the context of their historical moment, and we see their personalities shining through, and it's what makes it so wonderful. Now, the parallel here, and maybe this is a helpful illustration, is we can think about a parallel like the incarnation of Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, he is the Word made flesh. Fully God, and fully man. Now, in, in, in Jesus being fully God and fully man, his divinity is not diminished by his humanity, nor is his humanity diminished by his divinity. Now, in a parallel, and it's not exactly the same thing, but, it's, but we see a parallel here in that the written word, which testifies to the living word, is a divine document and a human document. It is fully God's word, and it's written through human authors as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is therefore fully reliable, truthful, authoritative, and effective. But it's also beautifully rich in revealing the real stories and experiences of people in real history and immersive revelation of God's will in and through people over time. It's what makes the scriptures so beautiful. Okay, so this is the origin. It's God-breathed, all right? Now let's talk about the purpose. What are these God-breathed words for? Paul says they're useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I just love how the scriptures engage our minds and our hearts. When you study God's word, he has chosen to preserve for us a written word that engages our intellect in the study of the interpretation of things and the historical moment and the authors and the original recipients and all the ins and outs of the events that were happening. It is a beautiful account of the story of what God has done. And yet it also is not merely an intellectual exercise. By the Spirit of God, these words will change your life and continue to reform and change your life. See, his word be like a, a seed planted in your heart that sprouts into a beautiful, fruitful tree for his glory. Friends, God cares most about your heart, about what you love, about what you desire, that your life is attuned to him, surrendered to him. And by the spirit, his word will convict you of your sin and illuminate truth and reveal what it means to walk in his ways. Now, I, would I, look at this list again. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Did you notice that these words are, need to be done in community? Most of them, or all of them, I mean, you, could, you could maybe do a little bit, but these words are things that are done person to person. When you're alone, it's hard to be rebuked. And so it, what, what I love about this is that Paul says that the, the way that God uses his word is he uses it across the, the body of Christ, the family of God as we encounter him in his word, and then as we minister to one another with the members all doing their part. And so it's a, it's a community thing. These things require that you're known, that you engage with other people, that you're close enough in relationship to others, that you open your heart and your mind graciously to receive teaching, to receive rebuking, to receive correcting and training in righteousness. We do it together as a family. I just love that. Okay, that's the purpose. What's the result? It's so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. Now remember the context. Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy. 
serving in a pastoral ministry in the local church, and he says that there are direct challenges to his faith from people who are against Jesus, who've, who are imposters, masquerading as those who have the truth. There's people who've compromised. They no longer stand in alignment. Now think about this context, all right? John Stott, the great English preacher from 50 years ago or so, he uh, wrote about this particular passage in the 1970s. Anybody remember and lived through the 1970s? I'm actually going to put my hand down. I was not around. Okay, he wrote about this very passage in all of the upheaval of the 1970s. And I want you to hear what he explained when he experienced the strife and the violence of the late 60s and early 70s. He wrote a commentary on 2 Timothy in 1973. And these are his words. They are eerily relevant for us. He says, reflecting on Paul's words to Timothy here, the times in which we seem to be living are very distressing. Sometimes we wonder if the world and the church have gone mad. But Paul says to Timothy, never mind if the pressure to conform is very strong. Never mind if you're young and inexperienced and timid and weak. Never mind if you find yourself alone in your witness. You know the biblical credentials of your faith. Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even in the midst of these grievous times, it can make you complete and can equip you for your work. It will lead to Christian maturity, he says. Friends, these words could be said of us today. The God-breathed scriptures are able to equip us to walk faithfully with Jesus by the power of the Spirit who guides us into all truth. Okay, so now, now that we've talked about what scripture is, Let's talk about what do we do with Scripture. And I want to show you the specific application Paul uses to Timothy here. And I want you to remember, these are the final words from a mentor to a young pastor. Crystallizing his priority to preach the gospel in the face of difficulty. And of, of course, now if you want to talk about what do we do with Scripture, this isn't capture the whole scope. There's lots of other passages we could talk about. But I want you to see how Paul's words here are so important for us to reflect on our day. See, when Paul reflected on his day and age, the prime problem that he focused on was this. People can't bear the truth. They refuse to listen to it. And he says it's because their personal desires are at the center. That the, the criterion by which they judge what is true is not based in God's revelation, but it's based, Paul says, on their own subjective taste. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun, friends. It's happening in the first century. And here Paul speaks about what to do in that moment. This is how he describes his contemporary situation. Let me remind you about what this paragraph says. He talks about the people in the first century. He says that they will not put up with sound doctrine. They'll turn their eyes away from the truth, turn their ears away from the truth. He says they'll suit their own desires and they'll gather around themselves a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Has he heard of YouTube? <laughs> That's basically what's available. It's like you can... There's a lot of good things out there too, but the internet has become this place where you can be like a wasteland of imposters. And so what is Timothy to do? If, if people will not bear the truth and will not listen to it, should he shrink back? 
This is Paul's question to him. No, of course. See, Paul encourages Timothy in verse 2. He says, keep on preaching. Do it with boldness and patience and careful instruction. And then he gives four commands in verse 5, which I think are so applicable for us. Look at verse 5 with me. Here's the four things he shares with him. Be steady. Be steady in all things. This word literally means be sober-minded. When others get wrapped around the axle on things and when they're, they're getting whipped up into a frenzy, Paul says to him, you, Timothy, be calm and level-headed. Remember, God has spoken. Rely on him. Be steady in all things. Second one is endure suffering. He says, be ready for persecution. He says, an environment like you find yourself, Timothy, or maybe like we find ourselves today, an environment where people won't tolerate truth can be very hostile. He says, be ready to endure difficulty. It may come. The third, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, keep the gospel at the center. Don't get sideways like all those other teachers. Keep preaching the gospel, Timothy. Keep yourself centered on, what, on, on Jesus and what he has done, and you will have your priorities straight when you're focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the fourth, fulfill your ministry. He says, persevere until your task is finished. He says, Timothy, don't give up. Remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Remember the confessing church? Remember those, maybe today you feel the same pressures? Friends, these could be the same commands for us that we, that we, dear friends, would be calm and level-headed when others in our culture are whipped up into a frenzy. We have God's revelation. We're not confused on what is right and what is wrong, what God desires calm and level-headed in those moments, that we, friends, would endure whatever persecutions come from standing firm in the truth of Scripture, that we would remain centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would persevere, trusting in the sufficiency, the clarity, the authority, and the necessity of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful we know we need you. We know in order to know you, Lord, we can, yes, see your presence, your power at work. We can know that you exist in, in the general revelation across this creation, but particularly to know your attributes and character and the path to salvation through Jesus Christ, your workings in history. We are so grateful that we have your authoritative word. What glory there is in, in that you've spoken to us and that we can receive that day by day that your word is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, shine your light upon us through your word and convict us and remind us and encourage us of that, that we would rest upon the true word spoken in this God-breathed scriptures that we hold in our hands. What a privilege. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Q&A time. Um, here's a couple quick things before we uh, go to some questions that I think might be helpful. I have a couple resources in the back. One of them is I call a Bible books chart. And if you ever wondered, like, when were the Bible books written? Like, what years? 
Well, who are the authors? What are the different genres? Like, is there, what's the difference between poetry and historical books, and where do they fall in the various books of the canon? This I put together and tells you all the different details related to how the Bible is constructed in, in, in its form. And so grab that. It's on the table in the back. Uh, second resource I want to share um, is we've got some other books that are listed on your little sermon handout. One of them I would highly recommend is by Kevin DeYoung called Taking God at His Word. It's a small book, best book I've seen on understanding the doctrine of the scriptures. And I printed out uh, a, a handout in the back that has what Kevin DeYoung calls uh, four characteristics of scripture that he uses the acronym SCAN. S-C-A-N, and he's just trying to help us remember it, okay? So here's the four of them, and you'll see them on the screen, and you can grab the handout in the back on your way out. That, God's, that we believe in the sufficiency of God's word. In other words, the scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. That we don't need a new revelation from heaven. That this means that any new idea you encounter must be tested against what is already revealed in the canon of scripture. It is sufficient no new revelations, no new truth, no innovative understandings of God. Okay, that's first, sufficiency. The second is clarity of God's word. That the saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught. It's not obscure. If you have ears to hear and you pick up the scriptures, you can understand God. It is clear. That's what this clarity means. While some passages may be challenging to understand, all that we need to know, believe, and do is clearly seen in the Bible. And there's clear passages that help us understand the less clear ones. Right? Third, authority of God's word. The last word always goes to the word of God. Okay? No matter what we face, we can't allow other sources of knowledge, if you will, play the trump card over the scriptures. That no matter what, all truth will accord with the Bible. Even if we can't fully understand some things, we can trust in the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word that it is the authoritative word to reveal what is true. Okay, that's third. Fourth is the necessity of God's word. That general revelation is not enough to save. Romans 1 says that you can know that God exists by seeing the grandeur of his creation. But do you know Jesus? See, when he cannot know God savingly, as Kevin DeYoung puts it, by means of personal experience or human reason alone. We need God's word to know who Christ is and how to be saved and how to live.